since we're going to actually do a class, I thought it would be important to write out the course, uh, course objectives, course description, um, and, an, uh, and an outline of the book of Revelation based on the text that we're going to be using for your viewing pleasure. Um, and I'm going to direct your attention to this. Uh, so last week the idea was just to give a very, very high arching overview. This is just... just a quick flyby. This is kind of what we're doing. This is kind of where we're going. And then this week I want to uh, bore down into several things. Um, and it may seem a little technical to you, but let me just say this to you guys. If you don't understand the things that I'm going to talk about today, the reason that we're doing the class will elude you. And, and that's honestly true. Uh, Rick and I have uh, wanted to teach um, Revelation from what is called a amillennial hermeneutic and um, because most of you understand revelation and eschatology from what's called a dispensational hermeneutic and because of that we have a, a, a great variety of understandings of the different things that go on throughout scripture and it's very easy for us to do some very very uh, unorthodox things for example dispensationalism will uh, interpret Revelation by Daniel. That violates every hermeneutical rule, standard rule that we have in biblical exegesis. All right? And because the New Testament always interprets the Old, not vice versa. The New Testament is the unfolding of the Old. So... When you hear about Daniel's 70 weeks and the seven-year tribulation and three and a half years and all of that stuff, that's Daniel being interjected into Revelation. Okay? And so I know this all sounds technical and, and what have you, but I want to I demonstrate how your hermeneutic and how you understand Scripture to be written really affects the way you understand eschatology and, in fact, all of, all of the Bible. I'm going to. Yeah, so another thing is, is that my wife tried to take Grace, tried to take uh, my notes from last night, all 11 pages, and, and try and do an outline. And after about three hours of struggling through it, she threw up her hands and said, I got this far and that's all I'm doing. So I told her to stop. So um, I make notes for me, they're hard to read. Um, they're pretty involved. So let's go through your course syllabus, and then we'll get to this. What are the defined objects, objectives of the class? And I want to read them with you. Uh, the first one is to reaffirm the book of Revelation's original intent of bringing hope to the persecuted church throughout the entirety of the last days. It's an important statement. Okay? Okay. The second is to reestablish the book of Revelation's intended theme of God bringing all things to consummation in Christ Jesus and to read the book as the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay? The third is to understand the book of Revelation to be a prophetic panoramic picture of God's unfolding plan of redemption throughout history and its future consummation in the victorious resurrected Christ through an amillennial perspective. And we will define that term as we go along, not today. The last one is to demonstrate the inherent 
salvific, which just means a system of salvation. The inherent salvific and theological inconsistencies contained within the dispensational hermeneutic, the very popular hermeneutic of today. As it pertains to the whole of Scripture, and specifically to the popular millennial future-end-time paradigm of the, the book of Revelation is predominantly interpreted in by Western Christianity. Now, that's a mouthful, but it, uh, you have a week and multiple weeks to read through this. Then I go in a little bit on the course description to describe what I'm talking about in that last statement. And then Josh has it somewhere. And then, uh, and then I lay out the book of Revelation, and I took it from a text that Rick and I will be holding to loosely. Okay? Has everybody got any, anybody got any questions on that? Is everybody all right with that? I think that's a yes. All right. Thank you. All right. Oh, yeah, there's coffee back there. If anybody needs coffee. Um, now, just to give us a recap, last week we talked about whether or not Revelation can, in fact, be understood and whether or not it's intended to be understood. The answer was yes, um, because of the way that the first couple of verses are structured, to show the people of God what must take place and to reveal Jesus Christ, not to con convolute the situation, not to obscure it, but to make it plain. Um, we then talked about why things were so confusing, um, and we went over those things. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on that. Uh, but basically, it boils down to many Christians believe that eschatology and the study of Revelation specifically are all about future, time, future events, things that have not yet happened. And we are going to demonstrate that you are in the middle of the book of Revelation, smack in the middle of it. That you are in the tribulation period. That you are in the millennium, as it were. That you are seeing these things unfold. For example, and we'll get to that later. Revelation 12 talks about Lucifer going to war against Michael the archangel and being cast out of heaven, right? You ever read that? Did you know that actually is a, that is actually a statement of what Jesus saw in the gospel? And I saw Lucifer fall like lightning. So if in the middle of Revelation chapter 12 is something that happened when Jesus was walking on the earth, what does that mean? That means that the book of Revelation is a panoramic picture. All right? It's not a future thing to be limited to an obscure place in our theology. The book of Revelation is a book of hope. It's a book for now. It's a book to get us... Uh, to, to give us reassurance about all things being summed up in Christ Jesus. And all things are right now being summed up in Christ Jesus. So we're not waiting for some future thing, okay? I beat that horse enough. Um, the last thing is, is that we talk about Revelation being a, uh, a message of hope. It should be understood as a message of hope. You should read it with the idea that this is... This, this brings me hope. This brings me why? Because you know that we win. Um, actually, Christ Jesus wins. Right? All right, any questions so far? That was just, a, again, a re... A high, yes, Grace. 
Yes, uh, that is the review that uh, the question was, was that the review that they have in their outline? That is, in fact, some of the review that Grace was able to get through on the outline. And now we're going to jump right in to uh, what would be more like a text or like a classroom. And I'm going to teach this like an undergraduate seminary class. Uh, don't I always? <laughs> right? So we're going to just define terms. We're going to go through this bullet point. I will try to write up here an outline for you. Okay, does that help? I'll, I'll just try to write the bullet points out, and you guys can go from that. So the first thing we have to do is we have to define these terms. What is hermeneutics? Anybody know what hermeneutics is? Hermeneutics defined. Rick, no answering. It is the process by which one interprets the scripture. Yes, that is. That is a loose definition. I would use a, a little bit more broad term. I would say it is the system by which one interprets the scripture. All right? And the actual definition, and it's not unknown to those of you who know me, but I differ a little bit with what they teach in most uh, courses with regards to hermeneutics because they have, and we'll talk about them here in a minute, they have four that I think are fine, but I think they're subsystems. Hermeneutics defined is simply this. It's a method or principle or a system of interpretation. That is the loose definition, all right? Method, principle, or system of interpretation. The word hermeneutics is derived from the Greek word hermeneo, which means to translate or interpret, okay? To hermen, how do you spell it? E-A-U? Uh, E-U-O. Hermeneo, okay? That's the Greek term. And it means to translate or interpret. Just so that you guys understand where it came from, it, it, it is derived uh, from Greek mythology, which gives an account of Hermes, the Greek god who brought the message of the god to humans, of the gods to humans, which he also interpreted. Okay? Thus the word hermeneo came to refer to bringing someone an understanding of something. Biblical hermeneutics then is the science and art of interpreting the scriptures. Okay, am I running ahead too fast? Everybody all right so far? Now, when this is, now those are general definitions, but when you get into theological terms, and when you start to talk about how does it apply to the theological issues, hermeneutics is the, the discipline of seeking to, uh, it seeks, a correct interpretation of the Bible. It is the efforts toward a correct interpretation of the Bible. To this end, it seeks to formulate principles of interpretation. All right? So it is, it is a science. It seeks to formulate principles of interpretation. These principles or rules are, are like the rule book for a game. 
the game is meaningless without the rules. Now, the number of rules will vary, but here are several primary rules, okay? So, depending on what textbook you read, if you are interested in such things, hermeneutics will lay out several different um, principles. I've listed a few of them here. There are more, but I've listed a few. The first one is Scripture interprets Scripture. Okay? How many of you have heard this before? Okay? Oh, what does this mean? And this is good for any of you guys when you're studying your Bible. Okay? This will help you in your Bible study. What does this mean? Scripture interprets Scripture. You're reading along, you hit some passage that just absolutely doesn't mean anything to you. It's like, what? What do you do? You look at the cross-references. Many Bibles are annotated, and they have a cross-reference. Okay, so it will give you other Scriptures that deal with that topic. And many times, those other Scriptures are a little bit more uh, clear, and they add to uh, the ambiguous ones. So that is one of the rules um, of hermeneutics. So the, uh, the interpretation of Scripture is to be in accordance to Scripture. That is, here's the, the actual term, the supreme arbiter in interpreting the meaning of a particular verse in Scripture is the overall teaching of the Bible. Okay? So to take a scripture out and interpret it even in a literal sense by itself, apart from what the Bible says about the whole of that topic, is a no-no. We do that quite a bit. Okay? Um, I can. It's an eschatological example. But the idea that Israel has its own salvation program at the end of history is not understand is taking a literal statement out of the Old Testament and building a theology around it despite what the rest of Scripture indicates. And we'll get into that later. Okay? Another thing is when we pull out promise cards. When you pull out a promise that God is going to make me prosperous well, we're defining prosperity in terms of, uh, of culture, not in terms of Scripture. So those are some of the ways that that happens. Okay, has everybody got that? This, is, this actually has a term. It's called the analogy of faith. Okay, that's what this term is. It's the first rule of hermeneutics. All right? In keeping with this, a sub-point of this is that So that the New Testament interprets the Old Testament, not vice versa. Okay? What does this mean? That means when you see a story in the Old Testament with regards to, to like a promise or something that projects something, for example, what in the world is the story of Jonah all about? 
some dude that got thrown over a ship and got gobbled up by a whale. Well, Jesus tells you in the Gospels what that story means and what it's a picture of. Noah's Ark. Jesus tells you what Noah's Ark symbolizes. The New Testament tells you what the tabernacle pointed toward. Okay? Now, a lot of times what we'll do is we'll go, to, we'll go to several books of the Bible, especially in eschatology, and we'll read something in the Old Testament, and then we shove it into Revelation. You can't do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the reality. They happen in reality. Noah's Ark happened. Jonah didn't swallow. It's not like it was a story that didn't really happen. Yeah. But they were shadows of, of a truth, a greater truth. Yeah. Rick pointed out, for those of you listening at home, uh, that um, the book of Hebrews speaks of these things as being shadows and types. They were actual events that spoke of a bigger thing. All right, so we'll get into why this is a, a weird thing and why this, why this is so prevalent in when we start talking specifically about dispensationalism. But just know that many, many believers do this, and they do it habitually without even thinking about it. They'll read something in the Old Testament, and then when they read something later in the New Testament, they go, oh, yeah, I'll take what the Old Testament says and stick it over here. That's what that means. That's backwards. The New Testament unfolds the old. It brings light to the old. It's the reality of the shadow. Does that make sense? All right. There's another one called, too, called census. Uh, I'm tar, sorry. Census um, literalis. Or sense literal. This one just simply means. Well, let me let me say this. This means to interpret the scripture literally for what it says where you can. Now we're going to talk about what's called the literalist viewpoint, not literalism, but literalist when we get into dispensationalism, and there is a difference. Reformed theology and those who hold to a covenant hermeneutics interpret Scripture in a, where we can in a literal way. When it says Jesus wept, we don't try to assume some metaphorical concept of what the tears represented. We understand that what happened was that Jesus felt what we all feel and wept. We understand that literally. Okay? However, what this does not mean is that we give everything a woodenly literal thing. So when you read Revelation and there's a beast coming out of the water with iron teeth, we don't think that one day we're all going to be out fishing and all of a sudden, oh my goodness. Okay, does that make sense? Yes. Well, that's a whole different thing. That's called textual criticism. 
and then and then you're starting to get into a, a whole lot of debatable topics. Um, what we hold to is, is that God is the overseer. He is the superintendent of his word. And that he will make sure that those who interpret his word interpret it the way that he intends it to be interpreted. It's an issue of, of faith, but it is also an issue of, of uh, those who have interpreted those kind of things have done the best job that they can. Um, I mean, but that's a, that's a completely a whole different can of worms, and I don't want to jump into that too because it will elicit a whole lot of, whole secondary set of questions. We can talk about that. That's a, a good question. Um, it rather means that we must interpret the Bible in a sense in which it was written. Parables are parables. Symbols are symbols. Poetry is poetry, and so on, right? Okay? History is history. So when you read, like, the Song of Solomon, and he talks about his beloved having a neck that is like an ivory tower did she have a neck that was an ivory tower no that's imagery and we know it to be imagery so we understand it as imagery okay um Later, when discussing dispensationalism, however, we will concern ourselves with the literalist interpretation, which is really quite different than this. Uh, the historic Protestant position, and this is important, there are two. There's a historic Protestant position, and then there is a dispensational position. And you have to know that dispensationalism is recent on the scene. Yes, it is not a historic understanding. It was, it was created by a man named John Darby, and it was propagated by the Schofield Bible in 1909. And we used to sing the song, my faith is based on nothing less than Schofield's words and printing press. Because <laughs> I was raised a dispensationalist, so... Yeah. Most... Most American Western Christians are dispensationalists. Okay. Um, anyway, the historic Protestant position does not negate, it's important to understand this and keep this in mind, does not negate this idea of, uh, of literal, uh, of this, uh, this um, um, sense literal, or the literal sense of the, the scriptures. Um, with regard to prophecy, instead they hold that the literal interpretation of the prophecy is to be accepted unless obvious figurative language is employed. Obvious. All right? Um, the New Testament, or the New Testament demonstrates a spiritual interpretation is intended, right? So the tabernacle in the Old Testament has a, what we call an allegorical or a typological Fulfillment in the New Testament, right? Do you know what that is? The Old Testament? No, even bigger than that. So all of the, all the temple events, all throughout the Old Testament, have a typological forward pointing. What is the fulfillment of the temple? Christ. Christ Jesus. I'll just tell you this right now, and this is a personal thing of mine. That is why I think that the dispensationalist idea of the temple being reestablished in a millennial period is abominable to me. Because it flies in the face of who Jesus is. 
He is the dwelling and the meeting place of God and man. That's what the temple is. And we have to understand that. So we understand that the temple is typological. It unfolds to a bigger, more glorious picture later. All right? Those are important words. Um, the next one, real quick, is that, everybody got this? Okay. I'm not going to hurry through this, so I want everybody to make sure that they get this because these are important. Um, the next one is that the implicit must implicit must be interpreted by the explicit. Okay? That means the ambiguous must be interpreted by the specific. That's all that means. Okay? Which is the next one. Obscure must be uh, interpreted. But here's, here's what I mean by implicit and explicit. There's a big difference between the Reformed hermeneutic and what's, what's called the Wesleyan or Arminian hermeneutic. Okay? And that will be borne out in this scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whomsoever believes on him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, that sounds pretty straightforward, right? But depending on your hermeneutic, you will understand that scripture in two different ways. The Wesleyan would say, whoever wants to believe can come to Jesus. It's all on them. All you have to do is believe. The reformer, however, understands that scripture in terms of Paul's teaching about election and what Jesus said that no man comes to the Father, which, by the way, is just a few verses later, that no man comes to the Father unless he is drawn. We will read this in a different way. We will read this to mean whomsoever the Father draws. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whomsoever believes because of what, the, what God has done, because of the gift of God of faith, We'll have eternal life. So you see how subtle that is? That's hermeneutics at work. And most of you understand the Bible in a hermeneutic, but most of you don't know it. And so I'm trying to bring this out because when we start talking about dispensationalism and we start talking actually about revelation from an amillennial perspective, you will have 8 million questions per verse if we don't go over this. Yeah, but I thought, yeah, but what happened to... Yeah, and those are all valid questions, but they come from this. They come from your hermeneutic, okay? Have I left anybody out in the dust? Is everybody okay? Everybody good? All right. Now, let me give you some importance, uh, uh, hermeneutic important bullet points here, and then we'll talk about exegesis, and then we'll get into dispensationalism. Hermeneutics importance is immense since a proper understanding of scripture is the basis of a sound theology okay i taught systematic theology two and a half years all all from a reformed hermeneutic okay my hermeneutic shapes the the way that i understand the entirety of scripture and 
believe it or not, the way you understand Scripture, themes like salvation, themes like the reason that Jesus came to the earth, themes like why did God create a garden, all of that is going to be shaped by what you think, what your overarching hermeneutic is. Okay? Since the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, are eschatological. Everybody know what eschatological means? Eschatology is just the study of last days. Actually, it's eschatos and logos, the last word. That's what it means. It is the study of the last things. So when we say eschatology and we talk about the last things, we have to understand what that means. How many of you know, how many of, and we talked about this last week, but let's, let's do a real quick review. When I say last days, from my hermeneutic, what am I talking about? I'm talking about every day from the day of Pentecost forward. So we are in the last days. So any reference in the New Testament to the last days is... There is a last days of last days. Yeah. But that's, that's the future aspect, that, that, the, the still waiting. So we live, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but we, we live in what's called a um, realized eschatology, inaugurated eschatology. That's the actual term. And then there's a future eschatology. So there is both. We're not saying that there's not. But when we talk about the last days, when the scripture talks about, especially like Peter and stuff like that, and John, when he says, in the last days will come Antichrist, um, look around. John was talking about that day as well as the future. Okay? So, um, since the Bible, the Old and the New Testament, now how is the Old Testament eschatological? Many people don't believe that the Old Testament is eschatological. How is it? it? Talks about the day of the Lord a lot. It looks forward to. Does it not also say that the gospel was preached to Abraham? Did it not also in Jude say that Enoch preached? Right? So gospel has been understood from as far back as there's been oral tradition. Which means that Adam began to speak of what we call the proto-evangelism to his kid. Hey, when we, when we fell, God said that your mom's seed would crush the serpent's head. We look forward to that day. Okay, does that make sense? So even the Old Testament, by looking forward, is eschatological. They looked forward to the Messiah. They looked forward to all of the promises of Abraham. There was uh, The promises of Abraham were themselves eschatological. One day you will. Okay? All right. Um, because the entire Bible is eschatological in nature, Paul completely talked from, from the backdrop of eschatology. As I press forward to the high calling, for me to die is gain. All of these things Paul looked forward to, our hope, 
what the Puritans call our blessed hope, is a looking forward. The entire, entirety of Scripture has an eschatological theme to it. Because that's true, your, your hermeneutic concerning eschatology will, in fact, shape the way you understand the entirety of Scripture. So it's important that you get it right, right? Now, there are what we call hermeneutical systems. And when you, if you ever do, read anything about hermeneutics, you will see that there are historically several. There are, one, the literal system. And that speaks for itself. What is the literal system? Means a biblical text is to be deciphered according to the plain meaning expressed by its linguistic construction and historical context. Okay. Um, two, there is the moral system. And this is people who read the Bible looking for a moral message in everything. All right. There's what's called the allegorical. You can put a parenthesis in your notes. It says typological slash spiritual. So when you hear, read the book, when you read some of the especially dispensationalist writing and they say, well, the spiritual interpretation is not a correct interpretation, they're talking about this. Typological, T-Y-P. Anybody, everybody know what typological means? What, what typology is? A picture or a foreshadowing? Typological, let's look at this. We can just simply point to this. Paul uses Adam, understands Adam, the first Adam, as a type of the Adam to come. Okay? That's typological. No, no, I'm saying that these are, these are what you will find in most studies of hermeneutics. But I want to show something that actually these are all subsystems. All of these can be applied to a larger, and this is where I differ from most hermeneutical teachings. We'll get into that in a minute because I think there are four hermeneutical systems that are larger, and we'll get to that in a second. So there's other, but I want you to understand that these are parts of them. So in, in the larger hermeneutic, you will read literally many things. In the larger hermeneutical, you will find morals being taught, right? In a larger hermeneutic, you will, you will interpret certain things allegorically. It can. It can. There's another one called anagogical. Um, and this is where I find a lot of, sadly enough, a lot of evangelicals run into. It's where it becomes mysticism. And a lot of the teaching nowadays about the Holy Spirit is anagogical. It's mystic. It's like the Holy Spirit will tell you something that, you know, yeah, it's odd. It's outside of Scripture. That's called anagogical. 
And anagogical literature is like the, is like the um, Kabbalah. Kabbalah is listed as an anagogical interpretation. Anagogical simply means a type of interpretation is more often known as mystical. Uh, it claims to explain the events of the Bible and how they relate to or predict what the future holds. It's almost like a crystal ball. It's almost like going to a fortune teller. Here's a perfect example. The Antichrist in Scripture is the Pope. That's a teaching. Yeah, there's a lot of hidden meanings. There's a lot of... Uh, or, for example, remember when everybody was predicting the exact day of Jesus coming back? Just before we hit the year 2000? Anybody remember that? Several people actually lost their ministry because they predicted that's anagogical. That's mystically trying to decipher something out of Scripture but outside of Scripture. Does that make sense? And in a lot of eschatology, we do that quite regularly. Yes? Yeah. I would suggest that they are anagogical in their in their hermeneutic. They they look for the mystic interpretations. Go ahead, Rick. Yeah. Okay. Anagogical. Yeah. Well, anagogical. That's why you're in class. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right. Everybody okay so far? Because, yes, ma'am. Right. Allegorical, spiritual, and typological. Okay? You'll read a lot of old writings, a lot of the old guys who, who were really godly men who wrote about Revelation from a spiritual perspective. They will actually say that in their writings. This has spiritual connotation. What they're talking about is this hermeneutic. Allegorical. What does the beast in Revelation coming up out of the water mean? What is the, prost what is the, the, the sea that the prostitute rides on in Revelation 18? What is that? All right? Those are allegorical questions. There is not really a scarlet harlot that's riding on a weird ten-headed red dragon that rides on the multitudes of the sea. There's not really, that's not going to come up, uh, and you know, it's not going to make the CNN news. Those are pictures. That's allegorical. We have to apply a spiritual meaning to that. What does that mean? And when Rick and I 
get into the actual text of Revelation, we will decipher that from an amillennial perspective. Okay? All right. Everybody good? Yes. I know. Um, I've, I've experienced that most dispensationalists will acquiesce to an allegorical when it's so painfully obvious that they don't have a choice. Okay? For example, what is the mark of the beast? Well, I understand it from an allegorical perspective. Do I believe that everybody's going to have a mark on the back of their head or their forehead, uh, back of their hand or their forehead? I'll tell you right now, I don't. I think it's, it's a counterfeit to the scriptures that say, and I will write my name on their hand or their forehead, and I will identify them as my own. That's what God says about his own. And I think the enemy comes along and says, oh, well, I'll do this. Does that make sense? So I understand even those things to be more allegorical or spiritual. But there are whole schools of thought. There are whole groups of people that are looking for the chip that gets put in the back of your hand. There were people that were saying, if you have a credit card, you've taken the mark of the beast. Just telling you. So it, it, when you get into this literal, and it's not literalism, it's a literal list. It's verbatim. To the word, despite what the rest of Scripture says. That is the literalist interpretation. Literalism is different. This is a proper hermeneutic. L literalism says, if it says Jesus wept, he actually cried. Okay? That's literalist, uh, literalism. Literalist is different. So there's a difference. All right. So am I blowing everybody out of the water here? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'd have to hear the scripture. I'd have to hear what they say, what they're saying, because you could, you could, you could pull the veil back on that and really understand what that's speaking to with regards to the full, the the full humanity of the incarnate Christ. And I, any scripture that talks, any sermon that talks about that is right on. Because it does re represent the full humanity. Okay, yes. Oh, he was asking about long sermons on the, the passage Jesus wept. And asked about what hermeneutic that would fall under. And it depends on what the guy was saying, to be honest with you. Alright, now then. Everybody got this? This is what you'll read in most textbooks. I, however, differ. I think there are overarching hermeneutics that include these, okay? And what I have come to understand is that, that there are several. But before we get to it, I want to talk about one more word. Oop, exegesis. Okay. Now, what does exegesis mean? Anybody know? Interpretation. 
criti- critically, uh, it's a critical explanation or interpretation of a text, of a text, okay? Now, you will exegete a scripture based on your hermeneutic, okay? In other words, you will read a scripture according to your overarching hermeneutic. For example, Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. A Wesleyan will read that different than a Reformed person. And the whole issue surrounds this word foreknowledge or foreknow. Is that right? Those he foreknows, or those he foreknew. Because depending on your hermeneutics, you will exegete that word differently. Yeah. Okay? So that's why this is important. You will either understand this as being God looked down time and saw what you would do and then built his plan, or you will understand this in the original Greek to mean those he set his love on. Because this word right here, know, is the same word as a man who knows his wife. Okay? So, the whole point of all this is that you, right now, every person in this room understands Scripture. They exegete Scripture according to a hermeneutic. Every person in this room does. I just gave it a lot of technical terms. But I did that for a reason. Because most of you are unaware that you do it. And I can almost guarantee you that every one of you has a particular slant on the way that you understand Revelation because of your hermeneutic. Because of the way you were taught. All right? Now then, I'm going to give you the four overarching hermeneutics, and I might have to stop for today, right when I've got you good and confused. Four hermeneutics. Uh, systems. These are, these are mine. Oops. I think there are probably more, but these are the four that I understand. The first one is Reformed. Now, why do I call this a hermeneutic? Because I understand the entirety of Scripture in accordance to certain aspects that the Reformed doctrine teaches. I understand, for example, that the, the idea of salvation all has to do with God's sovereignty from start to finish. It's the way that I understand it. However, a Wesleyan... And that is spelled right. Wesleyan will understand it completely different. They will understand that God initiates salvation, but then man has to participate in it by having his own faith. Okay? So because of that subtle change and difference in the way that these two hermeneutics understand Scripture, the whole of Scripture is changed. Okay? Does that make sense? Third one is dispensationalism. Okay? Dispensationalism is a series of economies or dispensations that God deals with people in a particular way during a particular season. And they break the entire Bible down and do seven of them. Okay? Most of 
Christian, Christianity in Western Christendom understands the Bible this way. And you can hear it when somebody says, I'm a New Testament Christian. You just gave yourself away. You are a dispensationalist. Okay? The last one is where we fall. Took me a while to figure out how to spell that. I keep wanting to put an E right there. Covenantal. Which means that we understand that we have sought to find the correlation between the Old and the New Testament. We've tried to understand that the Old Testament is valuable. How do the themes from the Old Testament play out in the New? What does the New speak of the Old? Is there a correlation between law and grace? Is there a correlation between temple and Jesus? Is there a correlation between the things that happened in Revelation and what was originally created in Genesis? Yes? Uh, this is, uh, covenantal has to do with an overarching, it really doesn't because a lot of times, really these two are kind of the higher than these two, quite honestly, but you can be dispensational and be reformed. I've seen it, okay? You can be covenantal and be reformed. I've never seen a, a, dispensa- a, a Wesleyan who's covenantal. I've never seen it, okay? I've just not, not, so... Um, covenantal understands the scripture to be a, an unfolding picture. Dispensation is, and let me just leave you with this. Dispensation sees scripture this way. And this is important when we get to Revelation. Dispensational sees scripture this way. Beginning, Gen- uh, Genesis, OT, Jesus comes, Israel. Jesus comes, Israel rejects Jesus. This is the church age. And then here, Jesus raptures, and then there is Israel picked back up over here. That's dispensationalism. Okay? That's a mess, but that's dispensationalism. Okay? Covenantal theology understands this. What was promised in Genesis begins to unfold. Shadows, types, we understand that the Old Testament is shadows and types, and that the original intent of Genesis will be played out in the glorification of Revelation. We'll be glorified in what Revelation tells us. That make sense? So we understand the Bible to be a panoramic picture going forward. A building, a glorification, a enlarging. So when we understand Israel in the Old Testament, we understand that the Reformers said the new Israel of God, which is now the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God. That is not an anti-Semitic statement. That is just the unfolding panorama of covenant theology. Okay? Everybody all right? I got to stop. Questions?
Reformed view, typically, if you go and look, read most Reformed books, they focus predominantly on salvation. Reformed theology basically understand, has to do with salvation and God's sovereignty. Okay? Covenant theology has to do with the unfolding panorama of Scripture. So we will read, so you can couple those. That's why I said there are four, but these all interact. Yeah. Yeah, but we have the odd occasion where we have a Reformed guy who's dispensational. Yeah, like John MacArthur or Wayne Grudem. Okay? So, these are not, you are this and nothing else. These are the four that I can come up with that in the, in, in the overarching understanding, your understanding overarchingly, you will have a combination of these. Okay, you'll be a Wesleyan and a dispensationalist. Usually those two go hand in hand. Yes. Yeah, uh, that would be a good idea is that, you know, each one of you has a personality type, but you're not exclusively intellectual. Or like I am, when, when I did my personality type, I was intellectual, which is the high, was, the, was my high one. But the... You know, that's not all I am. I'm other things as well. But these four overarching hermeneutics are basically the control factor by which you understand Scripture. And under them, all the other things I talked about will fall because you can be, as a Reformed covenantal theologian, you will understand things morally, you will understand things literally, you will understand things allegorically. Okay? So those are subsets of the higher hermeneutic, all right? So just so we'll part on this, we here, this church understands, the leadership of this church understands and teaches from a reformed covenantal hermeneutic, okay? And that is where we will teach revelation, or that is from what we will teach revelation. That is out of which our understanding of revelation comes. And so a lot of what you're going to hear when it comes to revelation will be different than what you've always thought. And this is why. Okay, does that make sense? Everybody okay? Because this, was, this wasn't just undergrad work. This was... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and the other thing Rick's point was is that very, very, very godly men fall on all sides of this, and that is very true, okay? It is very, very true, and I don't want to create a we-they by this. That's not the intent here. The intent is to give you an understanding of why we're teaching, why when we get into Revelation and we begin to teach that we're in the tribulation now, you go, wait. I thought the tribulation was still coming. This is why we talk about it in those terms. It's because of this hermeneutic, okay? Now, next week, we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of dispensationalism. After that, we'll get into the nuts and bolts of covenantal theology. <clears throat> then there will be a couple of times where I'll go in and talk about the different ways under those two concepts of understanding the book of Revelation specifically. 
premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, preterism. I know I left one out. Premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial. Oh, and historic premillennial. Okay? So all of those will have an effect on the way that you understand Revelation. Okay? Is that everybody okay? And then we get into the book. After we've laid the groundwork. Huh? Yeah. We are in this for the long haul. My point here is to teach you guys more than just, you know, going through. It's, it's, it's important why we know what, what we say we understand. Why do we say this? Why do we say these things? Well, here's why. Because in more than any time in any other history that I can think of, the ability to defend your faith is important right now. It's important. does indeed. shapes how you live. Father, we're grateful for your, your mercy, your grace, for your revelation to our hearts and minds of who you are and your intention in the great panorama of redemptive history. We're grateful, Father, that you've chosen us, not from anything that we've done, but just simply because of your mercy. We are in awe of that. Equip your saints, Father. Equip us for the warfare that wages around us. In Jesus' name, amen.